pray now as we open the scripture that you will work so deeply in us concerning the work of Christ that we will have longings for uh, no one else and that we'll be satisfied in him alone and that we will know in fact that he is our redeemer and that will have the full implications in our lives. In this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to Acts in chapter 15, please. Acts chapter 15. I want uh, to read not quite what is written in your bulletin. I want to read the first um, 21 verses, and then I want to read the first five verses of chapter 16. So Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, and then uh, after that I want to read... Chapter 16, 1 through 5. Hear the word of God. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about the question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared that all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep in, in order that and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God had how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. The remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then chapter 16 and verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. 
He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered them for uh, for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith and they increased in number in numbers daily. Now this is a very interesting juxtaposition of two passages. Um, interesting in the sense that in chapter 15, Paul and others vehemently debate and argue, Paul and Peter and James, that circumcision isn't required for salvation. And then in chapter 16, he takes Timothy and has him circumcised. Um, not only that, but he says that obedience to the law of Moses, in the sense in which he means it, isn't necessary. But yet, they tell the Gentile churches to do some things that are certainly in the law of Moses. Uh, And so we wonder, what is going on uh, with all of this? It's a very important chapter in the book of Acts. It's a very important chapter in the history of the church. Uh, First of all, because it makes us all Presbyterians. (laughs) Okay. But it does, in some sense. I mean, we had a Presbyterian meeting here this weekend because, because it says to us that the church isn't a group of independent, individual, particular churches, but there's some connection between them, which in a very real sense is what Presbyterians are all about. Again, this isn't the true church that is Presbyterianism. This isn't the, the whole deal, but it's an expression of, of what we believe the Scripture teaches on how we're to be connected to each other and how we're to govern ourselves. And so there was a huge issue in the life of the early church. What's the relationship between the Old, Old Covenant and New Covenant? What's the relationship between the law of Moses and the Gospel? Uh, what's the relationship between what even the Pharisees had taught concerning the law of Moses and now what has come to us to be known in the Gospel? So, so that was a very, very important question. And it wasn't left up to individual churches to think that through and decide for themselves and do what they thought best. But rather elders, presbyters, or in Greek, presbyteros, Um, the elders came together and met in Jerusalem. They were appointed, Paul and Barnabas, and sent by the church to come and meet with the elders in Jerusalem. And so there was a gathering there and a a debate and a discussion as about what all this meant. And it was very important. And thus, we who are in the Presbyterian family think that this is a wise thing to do, to have elders in particular churches and not to have churches independent from one another, but to gather and to discuss these very weighty matters and think that through. Obviously, the way that we govern ourselves is not uh, a guarantee that things won't go wrong. We have Presbyterian brethren uh, for whom things have gone quite wrong. But still we follow the scripture and say, okay, this is good for us to come together to discuss and to work these things through. Church councils have done that throughout the centuries and it's been a very helpful, been a very helpful thing. But, but more, signif- more significantly than, than that really, uh, there is a very important issue uh, uh, in, in theology here, in our biblical understanding of what it means to be followers of Christ. And that is, What must we do? What is necessary for one to be accepted by God? What really is necessary? Now you'll notice uh, the discussion here in verse 1 that some had come from Judea, indeed from Jerusalem, and said, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, 
you cannot be saved. And then that was summarized in verse 5. But some believers, some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, and so you can still see this relationship between those who have come to faith in Christ, but yet still not putting off all of the shackles of their former life. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. But the conclusion of Peter, we see, is in verse 11. He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now, when we, when we make this comparison between the Old Testament and the New, between the law of Moses and the gospel, in essence, these really aren't to be two ways, but one way of salvation, though in historic, historically in different time periods. That is, that God has revealed his way of redemption, his way of salvation, through history. And that history began, read back in Genesis 1, we have the creation in Genesis 3, we have the sin of Adam and Eve. And then it, right after that sin, God makes a promise, as you know, that one is going to come out of the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, that is, who will destroy this evil one. And you get a sense that things will be good again, that things will be renewed because of that, because of that work of God. And God chooses to reveal this and to work this through a family and then a nation. And the family is the family of Abraham. And he makes promises to Abraham that all the, the, the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And he makes a covenant with Abraham. And he says, and, and, and the scripture says that Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham himself wasn't righteous. But he came to God in faith and he believed and God granted him this right relationship to him. Not on the basis of anything that Abraham had done. Not on the basis of his works. Not on the basis of his own goodness and merit. But rather on the basis of God's grace to him. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then God gave Abraham a sign of this promise. And it was the sign of circumcision. And it said that, that through your seed, Abraham, I'm going to give this promise the circumcision. I'm going to give this promise. And it's going to be for your descendants and, and, and those after, so that, so that through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. In fact, there'll be one descendant that will come through you that will indeed be the blesser of all the nations of the world. And so it was a sign. And Paul speaks of circumcision in Romans chapter 4 as, as, as a sign of the righteousness that is by faith. It's not a sign of anything we do, but it's a sign of a promise of God that says, I will count you righteous on the basis of faith, not on the basis of, of your works. And then as this, as this family grows, it becomes a nation. God makes it a nation at Mount Sinai. And he gives them a constitution. He gives them a law. And this law affects everything in their life. It would be impossible for an Israelite to live for one minute without thinking about God. Because everything about their lives, was told to them about God. What they wore, what they ate, uh, how they worshipped, how they related to each other, how they would be as a nation. You couldn't get up in the morning, you couldn't live without thinking about God. And if you lived close to the tabernacle in the early days or the temple in the, in the later days, if you lived in Jerusalem, you'd walk outside and no doubt you'd even smell the aroma of the sacrifices going up to God and you knew to whom you belonged and why. And thus there were commands on how they were to live their moral lives. There were commands as to how they were to worship, how they were to live in the very presence of God. To live in the presence of God meant that you had to be holy. 
But immediately you'd begin to look at that law of God that he gave you as your command and think, I'm not holy. But then he would say, I'll make a way for you. And thus he had priests who themselves weren't holy either, but but would, would look the part. They'd wash and they'd dress in white garments and they'd stand in the presence of God on behalf of the people and you'd look at them and go, I get it. I understand that there is one that needs to stand before me as holy because I'm not. And so I'll go through this priest. And then there was this sacrifice that rather than their lives being taken, the life of this unblemished animal would be taken. You say, okay, I get it. That this law comes and in the narrow sense, I realize I can't obey it. I realize it convicts me of my sin before God. But he provides a way through this other, this priest who will stand before me on my behalf. And, and this sacrifice that whose life will be taken rather than mine. And so all of this law, all together. And so the way is in essence the same. It isn't on the basis of works, but it's on the basis of, of graces. Through faith, we trust that God has made a way and will make a way. And so when Jesus comes, you see, he's the very fulfillment of all of that. He's the fulfillment of all of that. So there's no need to go back to that. There's no need to go back to the old way because the true freedom has come. Because the old way means nothing unless Jesus comes to fulfill it. Because they're just human beings like you and me, those priests. And those animals aren't human. They're just animals. How can their blood pay for anything that we've done? How can they be worth us? And so Jesus comes and when he comes, he is the perfect priest. And so we stand in him before God. And his sacrifice is the perfect unblemished sacrifice. And he is of such great value that he does stand for us, his life for ours, his death instead of ours. And so the Father can justly take that. And you see, it isn't two ways. It was never meant to be contrasted. It was meant to teach us and to show us and to, and to enable us to see the very grace of God. So they were never supposed to be put one against the other. Well, now that we're here, we'll go back to there. But God wanted us simply to, wanted simply to move through history. And once Jesus had come, respect for the old, but, but no need to go back and live under that law. Because it could never save. It could never save in the narrow sense. That is, we could never obey the commands of God and find ourselves righteous. And it could never save in the broader sense because it was symbols and foreshadowing of that which is to come. Yet there were those in the days of Jesus, those in the days of the early church, who said, no, there is a doable way. There is a way to make it work. We can codify the law in such a way that we can actually obey it. And so we can have the best of both worlds. We can believe in Jesus and we can then run ourselves back through the law of Moses. And in a sense, that was anathema to Paul because he knew what had been revealed to him and he knew his own life. He knew that wasn't true for him. He knew he was the best stinking Pharisee. I guess you wouldn't call him a stinking Pharisee if he was a Pharisee. He was the best Pharisee. Although he would call himself a stinking Pharisee, wouldn't he? Yeah, he would. He's the best Pharisee that could ever be. It reminds us of Martin Luther who says if one could be saved by his monkery, he would have been saved. Because Luther saw himself as the best monk there was. He did everything. Paul did everything. And yet he realized that did not bring righteousness into his life. Because on the one hand, the law simply convicted him of his sin. And on the other hand, he knew that all the sacrifices were in and of themselves not sufficient apart from Christ. 
And so when Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles, would hear that these Gentile believers would have to go back through Judaism, go back through the law of Moses, go back through the rites and go back through the symbols and go back through the ceremonies, it just unnerved him. In fact, many think that Paul actually wrote his letter to to the Galatians while he was traveling from Antioch back to Jerusalem to make this debate. It appears as if Galatians was probably written before Acts 15. Because you think that if it was written after Acts 15, Paul would have referred to the council in Jerusalem while he was writing to the Galatians. He would have said, listen, this has already been settled back in Jerusalem. But so many think he wrote it on his way. And listen to how he describes this debate in chapter 1 and verse 1. He puts it like this. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul's saying, you're preaching a gospel that isn't the gospel. When you're telling people that they need to be circumcised in order to be saved, when they need to obey the law of Moses in order to be saved. Um, in fact, he makes a huge deal of it, chapter 2. He says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and said before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, so this is a different trip than the one we see in Acts 15, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. In other words, Paul is saying, I, I know the gospel that's been revealed to me. I know the gospel of freedom in Christ. And, and I want to make sure that it's right. So he, being a good Presbyterian, went back to Jerusalem, checked it out with the other elders and said, am I preaching the right stuff or am I off on my own little deal? I don't want to be independent out there teaching that which isn't true. Uh, and notice he said he took Titus uh, with him. And he said, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. In other words, if the apostles thought that circumcision was necessary for salvation and going back through the law of Moses, surely they would have had Titus uh, circumcised at that point. But, but they didn't. That's proof, you see. And then in, later in uh, chapter 2 of Galatians, in verse 11, he, 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 he has a situation with Peter, where Peter comes down to Antioch. And at first before these people from Jerusalem come down and start talking about this need to follow the law of Moses. Peter's free to eat with Gentiles and Jews, but then when they come down, Peter finds himself eating just with Jews and not Gentiles, and that upsets Paul tremendously. And so Paul's comment on that is in verse 15. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth but not, and not Gentile sinners, and yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. It's impossible. Again, in the narrow sense of the law it's impossible because we can't obey it. In the broader sense of the law those sacrifices don't cut it without Christ because they're just animals and they were just to show what was to come and to be God's blessing for that time. And so then Paul works his way through. Uh, and, and he says that this, this gospel of grace was first announced to Abraham. Chapter 3 in Galatians, verse 7, he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He's saying it's the same way that was true for Abraham. And the law that came didn't negate that promise. And so he says then in verse uh, 19, Why then the law? And he answers the question like this. He says, It was added because of, because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through the angels by an intermediary. In other words, he says, The law was given because of transgressions to show the sin that existed in people's lives. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He said, when the scripture came and the law came, it showed that everything was slave, enslaved, in slavery to sin. So verse 23. Now before faith came, we were captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, or in some versions it says, our tutor, until Christ came. That is, in order to lead us to Christ in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. He said the law came as a guardian. It kept us uh, under it. And it kept us saying, you have sinned before God. Thus you need to go to him by faith. But now that the, 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 the true one has come, Jesus has come, then we're led to him by way of the law. So we don't need to go back there and live under that law to be two churches rather than just one not to be two but rather to be one so there was a great debate about this in uh, Jerusalem indeed if Paul wrote the letter to Galatia uh, to the Galatians on his way uh, to Jerusalem you can only imagine by the time he got there he was really pumped Uh, he had written this and he knew his opening line was probably going to be if you believe Another gospel, if you believe this gospel, then you'll be damned. That would be a way to open, I suppose. And so, Peter, however, speaks first. And Peter tells of his experience. And, and if there's anybody uh, who, who, who can convince them, it would be Peter, I suppose. Because he's the one who received this great vision from God to say, go to the Gentiles. And so he went to the household of Cornelius, you remember, in Acts chapter 10. And he went to the household of Cornelius by the superintending of God, by the miracle of God, putting all of this together. And Peter was amazed. He preached the gospel. As he was preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell upon these Gentiles and they were saved. It was clear that they were saved, just in the same way that the Jews had been saved in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And it was undeniable to Peter. And so Peter's conclusion uh, was that God who did this, notice how he puts it, verse, well, the middle of verse 7, He says, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart, so God who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter says it's a matter of the heart. It isn't a matter of what's external. It's a matter of the heart. And God did that work in their hearts. So so why are we even talking about this? It's a done deal in them. Why should we be requiring anything else in them? It's a done deal in them because God did it. So his conclusion is this, verse 11. 
But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. We're not saved by the works of the law. They're not either. We're saved by grace, God's unmerited favor to sinners. His kindness, His goodness to sinners who deserve judgment. It's unmerited, not earned. It's the gift of God. He says, that's how we'll be saved. So then Paul and Barnabas take up the, the, the next uh, feed and, and they begin to talk about their experience with the Gentile church. And then James stands up, no doubt the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And, and he then makes the final appeal. And you'll notice he makes the final appeal to Scripture. Peter appealed to his experience the work of the Holy Spirit that was clear, that had already been evaluated by the church as a real work of God. Paul and Barnabas appealed to what they had seen. But James says the definitive word because he appeals to Scripture. And he said this is exactly what the prophet Amos had talked about. The prophet Amos had talked about the fact that a day will come when the throne of David that in Amos' time was in ruins would be restored. And so Jesus, the son of David, has come. And he talked about a time then when the Gentiles would enter. Notice how he puts it. He says, I'll rebuild its ruins, that is, the tent of David, and I'll restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. So that the Lord who makes these things known from old, who, who, who made these things known through the prophet even Amos, said Gentiles would come. And so they all just stand there saying, why are we arguing about this? The Bible, the Old Testament said it would be true and it is true. We see it being true. So how can we not receive these Gentiles into the life of the church? All right, that's that one piece, saved by grace through faith. But then two things are done that just kind of twist our knickers just a little bit. A letter is sent to the Gentiles, and you expect the letter to send to simply say, Hey guys, you're in. You believe you're in. That's it. Don't, don't worry about anything else. If any of these people from Jerusalem hassle you anymore, you just carry the letter in your pocket, you show the letter, it's signed by James and all the other guys, and so that's the, the, the authentic seal of the apostles, and you tell them to go take a hike. Nicely. But that's not what. James has them right. He certainly says, he doesn't say anything about circumcision, so you say, okay, that doesn't have to be done. But then he says, verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn from God, but we should write them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. Now why those things? Well, here's the reason given, verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. He's saying, listen, I'm going to talk to the Gentiles and tell them they don't have to be circumcised, but we also have to tell them they have to do church with these Jews who are believers. And they get hung up on a number of things because of the way they've lived their whole lives and the centuries of their history. Now, we can't appeal to circumcision because that was a real theological thing. That meant something very significant. And if we do circumcision, then that brings the whole law of Moses and the whole way of the old covenant back into things. So, so we're not going to go there. But you're going to be worshiping with these other people. 
and come from a different place. And, and while it's probably okay to eat meat offered to idols, it really drives them crazy. So could you not do that? And you Gentiles are known for your sexual sinning. Now, you should do away with that anyway. But really, really move fast. You know, you, you don't get a real time lag here of being say, well, we're Gentiles, you know. <laughs> we have a real problem with this. Uh, because you're going to be with a group of people for whom sexual immorality is huge. And so, make sure that you're really, really progressing uh, in that sanctification. And, and they get really skitzy about blood and strangulation of animals. So, so make sure when you worship with them that you don't cause them to stumble. I mean, that was Paul's line in Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He said, you know, all things are, are, are all right, but, but, but not all things are beneficial. And so understand that you're not an independent Lone Ranger Christian who's just free in Jesus to just be because you're with other people and they're at different places along their walk. They come from different places. So I want you to respect that. I want you to know that. In fact, Paul was so adamant about that, he even said of himself that to the Jew I become a Jew, to a Gentile I become a Gentile, so that I can share the gospel with them. Because it's not about circumcision, it's not about this, and it's not about that. What it's about is the gospel of Jesus. So I don't want anything to get in the way of that. So if there's anything that you can just be careful about when you're fellowshipping and worshipping with these Jewish Christians, then you do that. And then what's amazing is that then Paul and Barnabas begin their, or Silas begin their, 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 their trip, uh, this new mission trip, and, and they end up back in Lystra. They meet Timothy. Timothy's mom was a Jewess. Timothy's dad was a Greek. He hadn't been circumcised. Paul wants to take him. And so what's he do? He circumcises him. And you're thinking, Paul... How can you do that? I'm sure T Timothy's thinking that too. I'm sure he's thinking. <laughs> Heard about Titus? <laughs> Took him up to Jerusalem. He didn't have to be circumcised. I shouldn't have done that. Uh, but he shouldn't have to be circumcised. But, 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 but now, uh, why me? Well, it was not because Timothy needed it for his salvation. That was clear. And once that was clear then for Paul, it was simply a matter of how Timothy could be accepted by Jewish believers and by Jewish unbelievers to whom he might be able to share the gospel. He was sort of making it a non-issue. I mean, it was a non-issue because Timothy would be your ideal person to go out with Paul. His mom was Jewish. His dad was Greek. He's going to go to Jews and Greeks. Wow, we got people who understand both cultures. Now, how can we make him fit into both places? That's what's really important. It isn't about circumcision and salvation. It, it's simply about how do we make him fit. And since it isn't necessary for salvation, then, then all right, let's do it. Because what was important, you see, was that the gospel be shared uh, in every circumstance and in every situation and there would be no hang-ups anywhere in doing just that. Grace is a really difficult thing for us. But once we've received grace, you see, then the expectation is that we will be gracious people. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
person has received mercy, how can that person withhold mercy from another? Jesus said, uh, love, as I've loved you. Once we've received love from Jesus, how can we withhold loving like that? Forgive, he says, as I've forgiven you. Accept one another as God has accepted you in Christ Jesus. How can we not accept? I mean, we talk about the parable of the prodigal son, but really, it should be titled, The Parable of the Elder Brother. Because the reason Jesus told that story was, was to kind of catch us at a particular place. Oh, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture of God and redemption and all of that. But really, the, the, the climax of the story is when the prodigal comes back home. When the prodigal comes back home, what happens? The elder brother gets really upset. Why does he get upset? He gets upset because he's thinking, my brother doesn't deserve to be here. My brother ran off. My brother took the inheritance. My brother spent it all. And now in utter poverty, he can do nothing for himself at all. And now he shows up and dad throws him a party. But I've been here the whole time. I've been working like crazy in order to, 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 to make my father happy. And he's never thrown a party like this for me. And what's the father do? Comes to the older brother and he says, Rejoice. Your brother was lost. And now he's back sometimes it's hard for us to accept people who are different than we are who come into the fold from the places they come from and we want them to end up looking just like us and so there are these little hmm, non-spoken probably rules on belonging to particular churches Nobody ever says them because we know they're wrong, but we just kind of live it out. Like if you want to belong to our church, there's an educational requirement, you see. You have to have degrees of sorts because that's who we are. And if you don't, well, it'd be better maybe if you worship someplace else. Or at an income level, maybe if, if you, you know, make this amount of money, then you, you'll fit better in this particular place. Or maybe if you only make this amount of money, you'll fit better in that place. Or you're, if you're of a certain ethnic group, then you'll fit better in this place rather than that place. If you're in a particular political party, you fit better in this church rather than that church. You see, we split ourselves up on all these little things, unspoken but yet, but yet real. I remember as a kid, I, I didn't think I could become a Christian until my dad beat me. Because all the testimonies I'd ever heard were these testimonies of, of people saying, you know, I grew up in this horrible home and, and I was abused by my parents and so forth and so on. I don't want to make light of abuse. But I didn't. And I had a very nice childhood. But I thought, well, in order to be accepted as a Christian, you have to have, to have a particular testimony, a particular kind of experience in order to get in. And so if it's, you know, and I grew up, I can't remember not believing in Jesus. And so... I never thought I could share my testimony or really feel like I was in because I didn't have this dramatic kind of deal. And there are times when you feel that way. Well, I can't really be in unless I have a particular kind of experience, whether it's a conversion experience or whether it's speaking in tongues or whether it's some miraculous kind of crazy thing that takes place. You go, well, I can't really be in until I can express my testimony in that particular way or whether I have a particular uh, ministry bent. 
You know, you can come to this church if you're really interested in teaching. You can come to this church if you're really interested in helping the poor. You can come to this church if you're really interested in missions because we're a mission church. But God doesn't give us any freedom to divide ourselves up like that. He just simply doesn't. It comes very naturally to us. But as evidence of having received grace, we're to be givers of grace. The sentence in the Bible, and this is neither here nor there, but it's just a personal thing. Sentence in the Bible that rocks my world every day is in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And Paul simply says to the people, what do you have that you have not received? Meaning, what do you have that God didn't give to you? What basis can you stand up higher than anybody else? On what basis can you expect anything of anybody else in order to receive them? Because you don't have anything, Bill, that you haven't received from God. Even the faith with which you believe. And so you see, as a company of the people of God, we're to be gracious and we're to receive all those who come by faith. For we're going to be justified by faith and they will be too. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us as a company of people with these struggles that our brothers went through in the early, early days of church would not be lost. Father, we're, we're light years away from circumcision and all that. But still the tendency to put a yoke on others is there. So I pray God for grace, EPC. That we would be a church that wouldn't put those burdens on others. That you've got to be like us. And Father, that we would graciously receive and graciously go to others, other believers. Receive them into our lives. Father, may we know that freedom within our own souls. Individually and as a company of people. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Um, the response to the benediction, I don't know, lately I've been into long responses to the benediction. Pretty soon you'll be reading chapters. But uh, this one is just this. I've been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Now, when you say that, it's a profession of faith for sure. It's saying, yes, I'm a Christian. But implied in all of that, is that you understand that you receive as a brother, as a sister, all those who, like you, believe in Jesus. Please receive this as God's benediction now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, 
I've been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone.